on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Coming up next, America Can We Talk with your host, Debbie Georgianos. And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I'm so glad you joined us today. Every day I need to give great thanks to Brighty on TV who picked up this show a few months ago. And I'm very grateful they pick up this show. Go to their website, check out all their great shows. Mine's the best one, but there are a lot of other great shows there too. <laughs> but Brighty.com, go there. So I want to just tell you, we have a great guest joining us in studio today. And as you know, I far prefer in-studio guests. And we're very honored and just grateful to have Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. He is a Texas Lieutenant Governor. And as we were discussing before we came on, back when he ran for Lieutenant Governor in 2014, uh, I got on board early. My husband and I got on early supporting him. It was a little bit of a contentious primary. We were so grateful he ran. I uh, did an event in our home for him many years ago. And anyway, here he is today. He's Lieutenant Governor. And the reason it's such a great time to have him on with us is that the Texas legislature just completed their regular session. For the, I know we have nationwide listeners to remind you, Texas has one legislative session every other year for six months. So it's really big when we have a session. Just finished that, and lots of people are curious to see what worked in this legislative session, how it all worked out, what happened, what came out, and what didn't. And uh, I get to ask him, because now he's here, I get to ask him what in the world happened is some of the issues we care so much about. So please help me welcome to the show, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. I was looking for your teleprompter. You did that just off the cuff. That was I great. have no teleprompter. I know. Yes. That's great. I mean, I, you know, I'm on Fox a lot. They have a teleprompter. I mean, it's really, this is, this is very yeah. good. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, very you good. know, I was well, impressed. I was impressed. I was impressed. You, didn't well, thank you, sir. you didn't miss a word. <laughs> thank you, sir. You know, I'm an old television anchor. You know, I, I grew up in my career spending most of my life uh, doing uh, television, sportscaster, weathercaster, newscaster and then talk radio, and, and uh, so this is, I, I love being in a studio. It's, uh, it's, it's I cool. love being in the studio. Too. It's a great studio. Yeah. It's a great, and I'm always grateful for the guests who join yep. us in studio. Makes it a friendly uh, feel, yep. love that here. Um, and I know something about teleprompters. I did this show on radio for a long time, and then I started doing this here in 2019, January 2019, and they said, do you want to try a teleprompter? Oh my gosh, yeah. I, it's, it's not on my skill set. Yeah. I couldn't even. No. I, I couldn't do it, so yeah, I just talk. I, well, every speech I give, I do it from memory, and I don't use a teleprompter. And twice during the inauguration, because we've had three inaugurations, I said, "Okay, you want to get that speech right?" Because uh, when you're doing it ad lib, you sometimes you know I'll say, "Oh, I forgot to say that." So yeah. both times, the teleprompter like this, like this, because I'm like Donald Trump. I'm off the teleprompter immediately. I mean, as soon as <laughs> after the first paragraph, yeah. they're saying, "Where is he?" Go down, go up, go up. So. No, it's, but you know what, and if you know what you're talking about, and if you feel it in your heart, and if you're talking about what you believe, you don't need to see it in print. And so, yeah, you did that first event. It was 2013, actually, when there were four of us in the race at that time. I wasn't known in the Dallas area very well, and it was, a, it was really nice of you to invite your neighbors over so they could get to know me, and, and, it, and uh, so it's all worked out. It sure did work out. And I've been grateful over the years. I mean, people regularly refer in the Texas legislature. Obviously, we have the Senate, and you're the yeah. president of the Senate as lieutenant governor and the House. And really, for a long time, people, conservatives who are advocates, watch legislation move through. And the Senate seems to do a great job getting on board with serious legislative priorities, moving them along, and then they get to the House and bad things happen. Yeah. I do want to talk about that phenomenon, sure. how that might change, but the big issue, of course, that you've been talking about a lot, love to have you uh, summarize is 
what is this big battle over the property tax? I mean, yeah. everyone in this room would raise their hand and say, yes, I support reducing property tax. Everyone in Texas would love that. Yeah. It got the legislature, and now we're in a position we did not get the property tax issue done because the Senate and House don't agree. So can you yeah. summarize what the difference sure. is? And, and I, I don't want to go deep in the details, but let me just kind of give the broad overview. Uh, and by the way, the Dallas Morning News, for the third time now, has endorsed the Senate plan. The Houston Chronicles endorsed the Senate plan. The San Antonio Express, the Dallas Business Journal. I've never had any newspaper write anything positive about me in ever. I mean, this is a shock because our plan is so solid. So here's the deal. We, and to put this in perspective, we've never had more than $5 billion, and that was only once, where we could put towards property tax. And remember, when we reduce property tax, you have to keep doing it. You don't want to get it one year and have it taken back the next year. So the biggest bump we did was in 2019. And what a lot of people still get confused, including members in the Texas House, is the appraisals no longer, essentially, no longer impact your tax bill. You know, you get the appraisals in the spring, and you say, oh my goodness, because it used to be before 2019 that whatever your appraisal went up, your tax went up. And so now, in fact, when you go home tonight or if you're watching from home and you, and you go back and look at your appraisal from last year and your tax bill, you'll see the tax bill was here, the appraisal was here. How did we accomplish that? Because we limited the growth of local government to 3.5%, cities and counties, and school districts 2.5% growth. So if the values go up, they have to lower the tax rate. And so that's why the appraisals have been disconnected. And so this session, and we also, when I came into being Lieutenant Governor in 2015, if you remember, it's been a while ago, but your homestead exemption, the state was $15,000. And it was $15,000 for, I don't know, 10, 20 years, as long as I could remember. So in 15, we raised it to 25,000. And then last session, we raised it to 40,000. So this year, we wanna raise it to 100,000. So what does that mean to the average homeowner? The average homeowner in Texas has a home valued at $302,000. That's the, on Zillow as of the end of May. Uh, obviously, some areas are higher, some areas are lower. But that means if you have a $300,000 home and have a $100,000 homestead exemption, you're paying school taxes on a $200,000 home. It's the best savings, and by the way, because you'll vote for it in November on a constitutional amendment if the House will pass it, um, that, that will be instant and it will be the rest of your life. It can't be taken away. So here's, here's the deal. Because we have this great surplus, because the economy took off in Texas, and because Texas opened sooner than most states, we have $17.6 billion in the Senate budget and the House budget for property tax relief. So we both have the same. That's, that's significantly larger than we've ever had, and we'll never have that kind of surplus again. So we take this 17.6, and the House wants to give all 100% of it to homeowners and businesses. Well, when you take 17.6 and you spread it out among every homeowner and every business, less for homeowners. Because uh, you're giving, as, as all of the editorials have written, the House plan gives a large percentage of the money to businesses and the wealthiest homeowners. Because, if, because compression means cutting the school tax rate. So I did an example today in a tweet. There's a home, there's a story on Fox today about a $65 million home for sale in Texas. The most expensive home ever. Mm -hmm. And I did a little calculation. Under the House plan, that homeowner would get a $176,000 tax cut. And the person who lives in a $300,000 home, the average person, gets a $740 tax cut. So the big difference is the, the House and the governor, because he hasn't come out for or against the homestead exemption yet, but, and he supported the House plan on day one, uh, of all exemption means it's spread out amongst everyone and you get less. Our plan is, of the 17.6, take 70% of it, and give it to businesses and homes, because businesses can use help to all across the board, but take the other 30% and do a $100,000 homestead exemption. And what does the bottom line mean? It means under the House plan of all compression, uh, you get a $740 cut, and under the Senate plan, you get a $1,200 to $1,450 cut. You get $500 to $700 more per year for the rest of your life guaranteed. The House um, uh, sent us a bill on day one of the special session. They signed, he died, which means they quit. They went home. We haven't seen them since. The Senate's kept working. Um, I will not pass a bill that takes $17.6 billion and gives the majority of it to big business and the wealthiest homes, homesteads. We are going to stand solid. The Dallas Business Journal said, Dan, stand your ground. I will not give in 
on, on taking money from you and giving it to big business and the wealthier homeowners. And even when I talk to business and wealthy homeowners, they think that's fair plan. And so when the, well, you know, the governor says, well, you know, the Senate needs to compromise. We have. The House wants 100% to compression. The governor wants 100% to compression. We said we'll do 70-30 because we want to give the homeowners the biggest tax cut. And if they keep up and we have another special session and the House won't come to the table, we might just go to maybe 60-40 or 50-50 and even get more because I'm really frustrated that they're leaving the average homeowner out and giving more money to big business and wealthy people. That's not what, Republic, that's not what Republicans do. It's not what Republicans do. I'm remembering this while I was listening to you talk. You're really good with numbers and math in your head. I'm remembering this. I didn't even try to take notes, yes. but to quickly summarize for the yes. non-mathematically minded, yes. the version of the Senate would like to do in terms of adjusting property tax, more of the break in the property tax will go to the individual homeowner, yes, the and, homeowner. and the house one is going to go more broadly to the business, to the homeowner as well as the business owner. Yes. So the net of it is homeowners get the best break under the Senate bill. Yes, by far. And, and to be clear, of the, the $17.6 billion, we're in agreement to take 70% of that money, about $12 billion, and give it to everyone. But we want the other $5.8 <clears throat> billion or so, whatever the exact number is, and we want that to go just to homesteads. Home, that's 5.7 million people, 40% of which are senior citizens. So our bill, 1200 to 1450 every year, guaranteed, savings tax-free, and the Senate and the House bill, that's our bill. The House bill is $740, roughly. There's no yeah. comparison. There's no comparison. And I'll tell you, you made a point in one of the, I listened to several speeches you've yes. given. Uh, you made a great point about how when people lobby for tax cuts, or property tax cuts, the average citizen, you want it on your, what you're thinking is, is my home. home. Right. Everyone's thinking that. No one's thinking, right. gee, I, you know, sure wish that the big businesses right. over there got this break. I mean, it, it's what, you're, what the Senate's doing, responding with the people of Texas really yeah. wanted. When Greg yeah. Abbott and myself and, and all the senators and all the House members campaigned last year, there were two issues that everyone told us they wanted to focus on, the border and property taxes, or property tax and the border. Those were the top two. When we said we're going to get that done and pass, and this will be the biggest property tax cut in the history of the world, $17.6 billion. What you said, Debbie, is exactly right. They're thinking their home. Look, I'd be in favor of giving all $17.6 billion to, to, to just the, the average yes. homeowners. Yep. We don't have the votes in the House to get that done, but, but here's what's really strange, and I'll wrap up on this. We have passed this bill out of the Senate unanimously twice, all Democrats, all Republicans. 70-30, the big tax cut for average wow. homeowners. The House actually passed the same bill, 70-30, about a month ago. And now they've retreated from it, and they don't want to do it. And, and, and they've signed die now, and they've left the building. Uh, so it's totally irresponsible on their part. And they, they basically sent us a bill and said, take it or leave it. Because when you send someone a bill and you quit and go home, it says, take it or leave it. Well, they weren't telling me to take it or leave it. They were telling the people of Texas, those average 5.7 million homeowners, take it or leave it. And we are not going to transfer money from the pockets of average homeowners who need and deserve it and give it to big business and the wealthiest homeowners. Again, they're going to get 70% of the split, but these homeowners need the other 30%. And I, I'm not backing down. I, thank you. Thank you for not backing down. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yep. <clears throat> <clears throat> So let's just shift over. I understood recently that there, were, I know that with the way our session works, you've had the Senate and the House, you have bills, yeah. they pass, they go yeah. to the governor's desk. The governor has until this Sunday, yeah. this coming Sunday, to either sign them, make them into yeah. law, veto them, yeah. or if he were to just do nothing, they become law. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So isn't, what there was a, th I read as a threat, Governor Abbott talked about not signing a bunch of bills, pile up into the desk that you finally got in the Senate and House right. to agree on, until, what, what is he, be, until the property taxing property is resolved? Tax resolved. So he said if, if basically if the House <clears> and the Senate don't come together, um, he's going to veto a lot of bills, mostly Senate bills. And uh, look, the governor and I have had a really good working relationship uh, for nine years. I don't like to be, we've never been in a public little, you know, yes. spat. Uh, but this is so clear. This is so clear that the governor should be with us and not with the House on all compression. And the governor, again, has not come out and said what he's for. If he came out today and said, I'm for the homestead exemption for $100,000, the House would be back Monday. 
um, and, and I'm sure pass the bill because the members are getting crushed at home by not passing it uh, this time. But what's happened is, out of nowhere, the governor started this week vetoing Paul Betancourt's Senate bills. Now, why Paul Betancourt? Paul Betancourt is carrying our bill. And so it looks like Paul Betancourt is being singled out. There was a bill here in Dallas that the Dallas DA, a Democrat, asked us to pass. Paul Betancourt picked the bill up because there's apparently some kind of crime ring stealing gasoline from gas stations and the thousands of gallons of gasoline. So we passed a bill that would up the penalty to try to stop this crime. We did what Dallas asked us to do. And the governor vetoed it yesterday. And, and the reason was given, and usually you, you, you have to say why you vetoed a bill. Uh, and he vetoed the bill. He said, uh, this can wait until after we pass property taxes. The day before, wow. the day before he vetoed a bill of Paul Betancourt's for Amarillo, where the government <clears> was <throat> out of control in Amarillo, the citizens rose up. This bill was to protect the citizens, and the governor vetoed that bill. And so what the governor has said, he said yesterday, not my words, his words, are if we don't have a deal by Sunday, uh, he's going to veto a lot of bills. We still have over 200 bills that he has not signed. And that would be, that's not, you should veto a bill because it's bad policy or maybe you there's disagree. a big mistake in it. But, and normally, look, we pass about 1,200 bills a year. He might veto anywhere from 10 to 15. But he's threatening right now to, to veto dozens and dozens, maybe over 100. And if he does, I, t I just tweeted out before I came on air today. I said, Governor. We've reached out to the House. They don't know where the Speaker is. He's out of pocket until Sunday. So how are we supposed to come to an agreement okay. when the Speaker's not even anywhere to be found? This is a good time to pounce on the Speaker, since you just said that. And, and I, I do all the time on my show, but, but I know you need to say the things you want, are comfortable saying. But the Texas House is, you know, there's a Speaker of the House, as yeah. every legislative body has, and he is, we went over it before, he's selected largely because you get the Democrats behind him and a few Republicans right. and you end up with a very moderate Speaker of the House. But this attitude where he's saying, I won't come back, I'm not available, and my own members can't find me to right. say we better come back, this is really the Speaker of the House saying, I don't care what happens right. to this bill, to the other bills, I understand what the threat is that the governor's making, and I'm just going to let it stand. I, I right. mean, I, I find that unconscionable and, what's a good word, unpatriotic? Yeah. Un-Texan? I mean, un it is really an arrogant attitude, and I don't, and I don't know what anyone can do about that. So I don't know if the reason he signed he died because he had a vacation planned. Maybe. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I know this, that I'm on call 24-7, 365, and, and there have been a lot of tragedies in this state um, where we've gotten a call at 11 o'clock at night, no matter where we are, or 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, a mass shooting, uh, a, a hurricane disaster. Five police officers killed in Dallas. I remember that. I was with my grandson. It was a grand pops. I have eight grandchildren. It was a grandfather's weekend. And 11 o'clock, I made the decision I had to come up here because of, of, of that terrible tragedy. Abbott was out of the state. When you get elected to office, you're on duty 24-7, 365. And I don't care where you are. I don't care where he is. He's not more than a day's plane ride away. And, um, and he should be back and, and show up. Yeah, this is the Speaker of the House saying, I'm going to get my way because you, I'm going to go away and not right. be available. Okay, I have a list of bills here. There was a great piece put out by uh, Luke Macias, 48 conservative bills. The Texas House yeah. killed the Senate. These are bills passed by the Senate, yeah. killed by the House. And so this is kind of our list of why, why do you think these didn't happen. But I do want to, I'm mindful of the time. Sure. Can you in about two or three minutes tell me, what are the top things, your great accomplishments of bills that did pass this session that yeah. you're happy about? So we accomplished a lot. And that's why this is so sad, being in a fight over the property tax bill, because this should be a great victory. All three of us should be standing up <coughs> together, the governor, the speaker, right. myself, saying this is a great bill. Um, so a couple of things. We, I had 30 uh, lieutenant governor priorities. And the way it works, Debbie, is that, uh, and I think the Senate passed 500 bills this session, but I think 2,000 were filed. So if you all were senators, you can't file a bill from 1 to 30 because I hold those numbers back. You could start at 31 and go up, and you just do it. Whoever comes next gets the next number. And those 30 are to send a message of what the people ask us to send to pass, what the senators have suggested, and priorities of mine. And so of our 30, I'm proud to say uh, 23, I think the number is 23, have passed either as a Senate bill or a House bill. Because not every bill is a Senate bill. They may have a similar bill. and. You know, it, we don't expect every bill to be a Senate bill, and so if it's a House bill, that's fine. And, but 23 have passed, I think about 15 of the Senate bills and the 12 of theirs. 
And then two more, school choice, which we passed but have failed in the House, one of those bills Luke talked about, and the, and the property tax hasn't passed yet. But we will end up uh, 25 out of 30. Uh, the, the, the highlights, uh, we've never had this much money ever, and we'll never have a $40 billion surplus, roughly $40 billion, depending how you count the money, again. And so when I uh, helped write the budget with Joan Hoffman, who did a fabulous job as my finance chair, and, my fi and everybody writes the budget together, the first thing I said was, as Republicans, uh, uh, we can't leave $40 billion sitting in the bank because there are a lot of needs. And the public would say, Republicans and, and, and Democrats and independents, well, we had this need, and what are you holding on the money? At the same time, we can't spend all the money because th there's two ways to spend money, one-time things and ongoing things. So if we give teachers a pay raise, which we passed that bill in the House killed, by the way, to give teachers a pay raise, that's, we have to do that again next year and next year. So you have to divide that out because you can't, if we spent $40 billion on all ongoing things, well, next year we couldn't do another $40 billion. So we've kept $10 billion in reserve, and the way the, uh, the Constitution works, we're limited to our spending by a bill that we passed a few years ago in the Senate. Limited, we can't increase spending more than population times inflation. So the most we could spend was $12 billion out of the 40. So, so what do we do with the other remaining money? You will be voting this year on constitutional amendments in November. Like if we get this homestead exemption passed, and I say if, because if we don't, there will be no property tax bill. If the homeowners don't get the homestead exemption, the businesses aren't going to get their tax cut, bottom line. But assuming we do, you will vote on that. You voted on that two years ago when we went 25 to 40, and guess what? It got 85% of the vote. So the people will vote for it. We put a billion dollars into parks and wildlife to build new parks and an endowment for the future. Um, that will be voted on. We, we, we uh, created a new uh, higher education fund. Many of you have heard of the PUF. You say, what's the PUF? The Permanent University Fund. Only Texas A&M and Texas share in that. So we've created the Tough Fund, Texas University Fund, for all the non-A&M and Texas schools, like University of, of, of North Texas, like Texas State, Texas Tech, University of Houston. We've put $2.3 billion into mental health care beds. I did 133 city rural, rural tour on the bus last year. It was so much fun. I was, it was tiring. It was hard. I, I ate great food. I met great people. And I learned a lot. And so one of the things, we don't have enough mental health care beds. And yeah, I did put on 10 pounds. I see you smiling. Uh, I've lost it since, but I put on 10 pounds. I love lemon meringue pie. But, um, and everyone would make one for me. So we, we needed more mental health care beds. So we're adding hundreds and hundreds. We're building seven new hospitals or adding to hospitals. Uh, I also found out that our sheriffs in rural Texas some of them are making thirty-some thousand dollars a year. Deputies making twenty thousand a year. Well, anyone who wanted to go into law enforcement, growing up in rural Texas, comes to Dallas or Frisco or, or Fort Worth or Houston, wherever. So we put three hundred fifty million dollars in to increase the sheriff's pay up to a minimum of seventy-five. Deputies up to forty-one. DAs, jailers, investigators. Um, so those things are kind of how we spent this money, and uh, and we still have ten billion in reserve. The other important thing that we did, and I'm worried that we didn't do enough is on the grid. Two years ago, two years ago, the Senate wanted to build reserve power. And what do I mean by reserve? We have about <coughs> 80,000 megawatts of power available, 85,000, roughly. Of that, about 30,000 is wind and solar. So that leaves you 55,000 megawatts of what we call dispatchable. That's nuclear some, coal some, mostly natural gas plants. We have hundreds of natural gas plants across the state, half of them over 40 years old, by the way. Uh, we're going to need to be replaced at some point, sooner than later. So we wanted to build a reserve. Uh, so that meant that, like in URI, if everything is running, uh, we've got this extra reserve of 10,000 megawatts. The House didn't agree, uh, and so we tried to do it again this year. We couldn't get it moving. So what we have done is we've taken uh, $5 billion, so we have $10 billion in reserve, plus our rainy day fund of $22 billion, so we're saving a lot of money and then $5 billion to loan any company that will build new natural gas plants. We'll loan them money at 3%. We'll give them a 10% completion bonus when they finish the plant, and we're giving them a property tax abatement for 10 years because we must have power. Look, th tomorrow, we're well, this is Friday, we're live. I mean, this is Thursday, we're live. Tomorrow, it's estimated that we're going to be at the highest peak level ever. We need 80,000 megawatts of power. If the wind's not blowing tomorrow, we're in trouble. And the Texas miracle ends if you come in and you can't turn the lights on in your home or your office or the TV studio. So, so I've said to the governor, we've put together this plan. Again, I want to build a reserve immediately. Um, uh, I said, if, if people don't take up on this plan, Debbie, and build, you know, take advantage of this incentives, then come January, we need to, we need to come back and we need to 
pass a bill for reserve power. We have to have it. We're growing too fast. I was more than three minutes. Do. I'm sorry. No, actually, you know, I was going to say. I said I have to stop at 3.30. I can go to 3.35. Okay, we'll do five more. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know you have more questions. Go ahead. Well, I have a lot more. And I actually, we, um, I do want to get to this one point. I, yes. I could run through a bunch of bills that, that people were saying the Senate passed, the House yes. didn't. And, and maybe I'll talk about them after you leave. But I want to hit some issues I know people in this audience really care about. Yeah. One is, and I know it can seem obscure if you don't know about it, but Texas formed this bullion depository. Yes. And the gist of it is, you, in Texas, we're the first one in the yes. country, you can put your gold and your silver in a depository. Right. It sits there, it's safe. The idea that, uh, in fact, Kevin Freeman was on the show a few months yes. ago talking about this idea, why can't we treat that as, uh, have access to it as digital, <laughs> uh, the same way you would use your ATM card against the bank balance you right. have in the bank, why can't we use, do that with the value of our gold and silver in the bullion? So it was like digital currency as gold. I thought it was using gold. I thought it was the most brilliant idea ever because it circumvents a federal effort to central bank digital currency. Why didn't that go anywhere? So the bullion bank, first of all, uh, when it passed a couple of years ago, has been a great success so far. Um, it was easy to understand for the general member and the public, okay, I have gold, I want a place to store it safely, we can do that, and it's good to do it in Texas. The digital currency issue is not yet sunk in to the general 181 members or the general public. Um, I used to think of Bitcoin years ago was a coin. Uh, <laughs> I saw a picture of a coin. Am I the only person that thought that? <laughs> no, 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 you're not and, the only one. And, and when I heard them say we're mining for Bitcoin, I'm saying, really, where are they mining for that? It <laughs> must be China. Everything else comes from China. So, um, you know, I have to make fun of myself because five or six years ago when this was coming about, I mean, I, and I learned, and, and last year, by the way, I had a lot of meetings with people on digital currency because, and banks to understand it. And so it's it just, sometimes we say in the Senate, it's not ripe yet. It, it's not that it's a bad idea. It's not that it won't happen. It just wasn't, the members weren't ready this time to go forward. They didn't understand it they enough. They didn't understand, they understand it. it. And, and actually, that was an answer. I, I, Senator Bob Hall was on the show. Yes. I don't know when it was. He said the same thing. I don't think people got what it is. Yeah. To me, if you're concerned at all about the central bank digital currency, right, right. I mean, Ted Cruz has been all over right, it right. talking about this is dangerous out of Washington. We've got to do something right. in Texas. So, um, and we I'm, can be the leader, by the way. We can yes, be the leader. Of this. We, we should be the leader. leader. We should yeah, be the leader yeah. to just circumvent with it. With Sometimes this. it takes a while to get new and big ideas. You know, I passed the sonogram bill in 2011, which has saved almost 300,000 babies' lives because it, it said yes. if, if you go to get a, an abortion, you have to see the sonogram of the baby, and it stopped. It's dramatically cut abortion by 25,000 or more a year for the last 10 years, uh, or 12 years now. It took me six years. To, it took me four years to pass that bill. I yeah. changed the rules in the Senate when I became lieutenant governor so that, see, in the, in the Senate, the reason we pass all of the conservative legislation, I ch the Senate votes on the rules, but I had eight new senators come in with me when I got elected, and we all voted to change, we all ran on voting, changing the rules, because the senators changed the rules. I had been trying to do that as a senator, I could never get there, but um, as lieutenant governor, we got there, and what that meant was, um, we used to have this thing called a blocker bill. You had to have 21 votes to bring a bill to the floor. You only needed 16, simple majority to pass it. But we've never had more than 20 Republican senators. So Debbie, back in those in those days when I was a senator, the Democrats literally you'd walk up to a Democrat if you were, and you'd never be a Democrat. I walk, Debbie, can I pass my bill today? And you say, No, no, we're gonna let you pass your pro-life, pro-second amendment, whatever it was. We're not gonna let you do that. So we've changed that rule to to 19 and now 18. Yeah. So I have 19 Republicans. It only takes 18 to bring a bill to the floor. So the Democrats can't stop us. And in the House, they have rules over there. In the House, they have rules over there that stop Republicans. And they need to change their rules. These points of order are ridiculous. They had hundreds of points of order. If a word is misspelled, the bill dies. Imagine working on digital currency for a year and a half, getting the votes, having it there, and someone says, they spelled currency wrong, so that needs to go back to committee. Point of order, yeah. Point of order. We have, this session, I think we had about six points of order in the Senate, all session. I think they had over 200, 250. And it kills, kills legislation all day okay. long. Okay, Lieutenant Shouldn't Kevin, be allowed. Shouldn't be allowed, I agree. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, I have 35 more questions yeah. and uh, exactly six seconds. So I committed to you. I to, I'll go five more minutes. I'll give you a bonus five. Okay, okay, bonus five. Okay. I'll be five minutes late. <laughs> 
Look, I would stay the whole hour, but I've got another appointment at four, and I have to drive halfway across town, so and I have to be on time there. And then I have another event at 5:30. So after. Well, I, I did want to say in the beginning, yeah. and I didn't want to take time to say yeah. it then, but I'll say it right now. I, I am really grateful and honored you could take the time here because uh -huh. I know when you're up in Dallas, you have uh, constituents, you have major policy thinkers, you have all sorts of people who want your time. Yeah. I'm grateful that you're here, and so I guess. Well, um, we've been in touch for now. We've stayed in touch for. Since eight, 2013. 2013. Yeah. Through text, through questions. Um, and uh, so I was I, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. I sent you a few texts periodically. I think I did say about go digital gold currency. Yes. Really, really, let's do this. Yes. We can be a leader. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You did, you um, did. You're all in. You're all in. <laughs> uh, I also, on election integrity, I want to yes. quickly hit on that. I think that the, the at least advocates I'm aware of, would love ultimately to get Texas to the area place where we just had paper ballots only, eliminate machines. I realize that didn't happen. It wasn't even in a bill. Yeah. It wasn't even in a bill this session to go that absolute. Is there a path forward to getting us there to where we eventually can potentially eliminate machines and simply use paper ballots? Is that just a bridge too far? Well, I, I don't want to say it's a bridge too far. What I would say is that you will also have a lot of problems with just paper ballots. I mean, there is no fail-safe, fail-safe guarantee. If people want to cheat, they will find a way to cheat. Um, when I, I for, uh, I was Rick Perry's, um, I was on his team when he ran for president, and I went to Iowa for the caucus. I was on Ted Cruz as his chairman. I went to Iowa for the caucuses. I was Don, Donald Trump's um, chairman. I went to Iowa for, the, so I've had a lot of experience up there. And when you go to the caucuses, they do it by paper. And, and, you know, you go out and you have a group like this where we fan all over the we fan all over Iowa and you go out to make your pitch for your candidate and the people sit there and they vote. There's someone collecting the pieces of paper and they go back in the corner and they count them. I don't, I don't know who's writing what well, on the paper. And so there has to be a fail-safe way to do it that we can secure it. And, and so if we can find that, um, that, that, is, that is the gold standard. Um, and I think we just have to keep working on that. Let me say something about the voting in Texas. Dallas County, Bear County, Travis County, all big blue counties. To my knowledge, there weren't too many complaints this time. The votes were counted by 11 o'clock at night or at midnight. Um, but we know, but what we don't know are the votes it cast are all of them being counted. And, and, and exactly who, we, don't, we don't know the process, the chain of evidence. And so we've got to secure that. But when, I, when I'm saying that, I'm not giving them high grades. I'm saying in Harris County, it's a disaster where, where they ran out of paper. Um, 21 out of 25 places. Seemingly intentionally. Not, and, and so we're still counting votes from 2018. So where you have, where you have people that want to cheat, they'll find however they can cheat. Uh, and so we have to continue to pass. Oh, you know what? That's my phone. <laughs> no, you know what? That's 333. Alan, where are you? Alan's right there. So, Alan, that's my 333 alarm. I'll tell you that to finish the show. But here's the point. We passed over 14. It ties up everything in a ribbon. We passed 14 election bills to the House. They killed 12 of them. Election bills to tighten all these things. And we're going to continue to seek to find the best way because we know that we've tightened the mail-in ballots down a little bit by putting your, your uh, Social Security number or the last four digits of your social so we can track it. But we still know there's voter fraud. Um, and, and we're always going to have it. We just have to eliminate it, get it down to a trickle and not a flood. The 333 I'll finish with. So I was having a meeting like this uh, when I was running in 2013 in Midland, not on TV, but I was meeting with, with someone that I wanted to get his support, and his phone went off just like that. And his name was Frosty, uh, literally. And I said, Frosty, take that. must be your call. He said, no, 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 that's my 333 alarm. And I said, what's that? He said, well, uh, in our men's Bible study, we had 333 on our phone for Jeremiah 33.3, call on me. So he said, we all have that on our phone. Um, and so it's been on my phone for 10 years. And it does two things. If I'm by myself, it gives me a chance as a Christian to take a deep breath, stop, thank the Lord for all the blessings I've been given. And if I'm with people who knew I'd be on live television, um, I've never done a show at 333, um, I get a chance if I'm just meeting with a person to witness in that way. And so that's the 333. I think God said he wanted you all to put 333 on your phones and everyone watching. And I think Alan's telling me it's time for me to go. <laughs> I believe he is. All Lieutenant right. Governor Dan Patrick, thank I want to thank you so oh, very much for joining me. Let's do, we'll do it again. Thank you. Do it again. Okay. I love it. Thank yep. you. Thank you.
So my very fine friends, uh, we're going to rock and roll here for 25 more minutes. Um, I, first of all, I really am grateful for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick coming in today. I did have many more questions. I mean, literally, and, I, and there's so many issues matter. And it's not just, if you're watching this and you're in Idaho, you're thinking, well, you're talking Texas. But I'm really talking America. Texas is often... Texas is often the leader on issues of all kinds. Texas is a leader on issues that are that are range from sex education and CRT and uh, tax policy, just on issue after issue. People around the country look to Texas and they want to know that Texas is a place where conservative answers will find root in the legislature where we'll get answers from them. So uh, wherever you are listening, uh, we, this, is, this is just a little taste of what uh, we try to do in Texas, which is to encourage the leadership in the House and Senate to grab onto these serious issues and, and to try to bring them forth into law. Uh, Dan, Texas uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick ha has been a friend for years. Uh, he does listen. He does respond to, I mean, I, I do ping him periodically, pushing on certain issues, and, and some of them just, just can't get done. You know, I, I know as an activist, I feel like I've made the list of issues, and we present it, and we present it to our state rep and whoever else we present it to, and we kind of think, okay, chop, chop, go do it. And, and I think they would like to. The Texas Senate is far more responsive to the grassroots, far more responsive, really, to, um, you know, to what the people, the voters, and the GOP base uh, want to have. The struggle we have in the Texas House, and I'll just say a quick minute about this. I could have gone into much more detail, uh, but we have a Texas House where the leadership is not selected. The, the House Speaker, who is the leader, who sets the chairmanship of committees, he sets who sits in the Rules Committee, he sets everything that matters. He really sets the table for kind of everything that's ever going to happen uh, in, the, in the House that year. Um, he really was selected by the Democrats in the Texas. You'd think... Why would that happen? Because you have a Republican majority, and we do. But what has happened, sadly, over many years is that Democrats stick together and Republicans do not. And so the Texas Democrats, who are in the minority in the House, band together, pick off someone to be the, they say, we'll back you for speaker. And then all that person has to do is get, you know, whatever the majority difference is, majority majority, pick off 10 or 12 Republicans, get behind them. So you really have the Texas House more or less run by the Democrats, even though we have a Republican majority. And believe me, after session after session and year after year, many strategists have tried to contort the system some way to make it so that we do actually have Republicans choosing the chair, the, the, the Speaker of the House, and so far I've not been able to accomplish that. And so, you know, I literally had, I don't, I guess I'm not sure I want to do that in the show today, but this is a great piece I put up on our website, and I'll tell you about it. It's by this Luke Macias, uh, whom I met with recently, but anyway, he's a great thinker and writer, and he wrote about 48 conservative bills that Texas House killed this session, and literally meaning that what they do is the, the Senate will pass a really good bill, the GOP base wants it, which means the majority of Texans want it. It gets to the House, and they either get it hung up in the Rules Committee, so it never even gets to the floor, or it goes to a committee chaired by a Democrat or someone who has an R by their name, but they function like a Democrat, and it dies in the committee. So even the great state of Texas, we have these struggles. Um, I do... I have felt impatient with many issues in the Texas legislature uh, over the years because I feel like there's no doubt this is what the majority of voters want, the Republican majority want, but you can't, um, can't seem to um, get the legislation to do it. One last thing about Governor Abbott, and I want to turn to something about Flag Day yesterday, but um, about Governor Abbott, um, I obviously, if you listen to my show very often, you know I, I endorsed a different candidate for governor. Um, I, I endorsed Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. I also thought there was a wonderful candidate. There are two other great candidates in the primary uh, against Governor Abbott, uh, but it was, there was Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. It was Texas, former Texas State Senator Don Huffines, great conservatives, Chad Prather, another great conservative. And for whatever reasons, the election uh, results emerged showing that Governor Abbott had won that primary. I don't share a Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's confidence that our election system is actually fair. I mean, it's actually accurate. I, I understand that any system is going to have some limitations, some theft of elections possible, but the difference between having a few extra paper ballots sneaked in because someone got a hold of a pile and filled out a few more extra ballots, the difference between that and electronically manipulable votes 
is night and day. And what we have in our country and the great state of Texas, I believe, is electronic manipulation of voter tabulation software, electronic manipulation of our elections. We do not have elections in Texas that are, are clean and pure because that capacity to manipulate machines exists and, and is regularly used. So uh, I, I don't share his, his comfort with the current system. Um, and I don't, I had very strong doubts as to whether Governor Abbott won that primary uh, by the numbers they claim he did. But in any case, um, I, I'm going to push, I will continue to push this, get rid of all machines. I, I think it's the only real answer. Um, you know, it's a funny thing. When I, I first, I've been uh, texting with uh, Dan Patrick saying, asked about the show, yeah, that'd be great, great, great. And so it was like two days ago, he goes, you know, I only have 30 minutes. I'm like, well, as I told you, we have an hour show. And so, <laughs> but what are you going to do? I'm grateful he had the time that he came and spent that time. I, I think he does listen to the grassroots. So I want to do that with the last 20 minutes of the show. Um, I want to share some things I was going to share yesterday. Uh, and and um, I didn't do a show yesterday because we had a little dental adventure. I'll just leave it at that. I couldn't do my show yesterday. So I want to talk about Flag Day. And it kind of ties to the reason I do this show. It ties to what America is. It ties to what Texas stand for, stands for. So yesterday was Flag Day, one of the most important patriotic holidays there is. It's the honoring of the flag. And you know, when you think about even football flags. During football season, you'll see people who have, you know, the Minnesota Vikings flag outside their house or the Dallas Cowboys, wherever their team is. Flags symbolize who you're loyal to. They symbolize what you believe in and who you are loyal to. And so in Texas, you know, we have a Texas flag. And I, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing to have a flag that symbolizes, it, it's more than just your team colors. It, it symbolizes who you are. Well, the U.S. flag, America's flag, it is a symbol of what America is. It symbolizes from the very beginning of time, the formation of America, what we believed America was going to stand for, what the Declaration of Independence was written about, what the Constitution was created, is to defend this idea of America. And so honoring the flag is a really important thing. And Flag Day is great, put flags out. But there was an incident at the White House two days before Flag Day, and um, I sent that picture to Mr. Emilio. You got the picture? Good. Okay. Um, so I want to just tell you this quick incident to tell my happy audience here. So um, there was an uh, LGBTQ pride parade thing uh, at, the, at the U.S. White at our American White House. And so there's an outdoor event, and they had a flag display. You know, the uh, outdoor, the, you've probably all seen the picture, but the White House has this curved, beautiful entry, and they had flags hanging down. So if you can, yeah, get, oh, there you go. It's on this screen, too. So you can happily see you have the pride flag in the middle and the U.S. flag on either side. And so some members actually put that back up. Yeah, this guy complained and, or, or commented, as did many others, this doesn't comply with federal law. It doesn't comply with the flag code because the flag is supposed to be the American U.S. flag when displayed with other flags. It's supposed to be, if it's vertical, it's supposed to be the highest one. And if it's to be like this, it's supposed to be the center one. And, it's, and you know, you can think this is someone fussing about etiquette rules, like did you use the wrong fork? But it's really not like that. It's not an etiquette rule like, did you use the wrong fork or did you, you know, mispronounce the ambassador's name or something that's kind of, you know, unimpressive but, but, un, but unimportant. It's really important because it, what it symbolizes is what I value, what, I, what I'm, and the flag represents for America what America's supposed to be. And so the flag being displayed this way in the White House is yet another among dozens of examples I will give you of the actual disrespect by this administration in Washington, D.C., this he who occupies the White House, Biden, disrespect not just for protocol. I'm going to talk about protocol in a moment, but not just for protocol, but really it's, it's a bigger message from this White House than just, uh, you know, we don't really care about flag protocol. Backing up for a second, I looked up about the, there is actually an office of protocol. In fact, I knew someone who worked there in the Bush administration. But back to this, there's an office of protocol that is a huge job. It is someone who's in the State Department. They're, they're a deputy secretary of state. They're appointed directly by the president. And their job is to make sure protocols followed. And when you have big events, what, who, who lines up, who's seated here, you know, who's, uh, you know, which order do you introduce them? Protocol rules are not just there 
to be polite. They're there to show the honoring and the respect of the individuals, whoever is visiting the White House, with the way the flags are displayed. It is a, it is a profoundly important thing because it symbolizes what you believe in and respect. So there's Office of Protocol. I had the numbers right here, but anyway, it's a huge department. In fact, within the Office of Protocol, they have like seven divisions, and one is just about like flags and things. So in the White House, someone in the White House has the, has the obligation to decide how those flags are displayed. This was not a decision by a summer intern who didn't know any better and put the, the, you know, the uh, pride flag in the middle with the U.S. flag on the side. That's not what this is. This is not just someone goofed up. In the same way, the Biden administration is not abandoning the southern border because they didn't realize what would happen if they never enforced it. Or they didn't realize what would happen if they never put enough troops down. They didn't realize what, they, what everything the Biden team is doing is intentional from abandoning the southern border to pulling troops out of Afghanistan before we were ready, before we could protect Afghanistan, from all of the spending they did with COVID, which ended up just, just um, decimating the budget. Everything they do is intentional, and they should not get a pass on any of the anti-American things they do just because you can think of a reason maybe they didn't really mean that. Put that flag thing up again. Can you do that? Yeah. Uh, just for a second. This is a choice. This is a message from the Biden administration saying we don't honor what America really is. We're really the, the biggest thing we are. We are speaking out for, in this case, the LGBTQ agenda. And there were defenders responding when this criticism came out because members of the House and Senate spoke up and said, you're not supposed to do that. It's a violation of protocol. There were defenders who said, oh, no, no, no. There was a flag that was higher. There's another picture. Let me just show you this picture. If you step way back, you see, this is the White House now. You step way back. This guy, by the way, is, the, um, is Kamala Harris's husband. This gentleman is. But you see how the three flags are displayed well, way up on top of the White House. See that tiny little U.S. flag on the top? That's what they said. No, no, we didn't break protocol because the flag is right there. See? It is mockery of America. It is mockery. Of, it's, it is not a minor thing to be ignored or dismissed as, you know, well, they kind of screwed up. This is a decision by this administration to mock America. It's a decision to mock America. It's a decision to say we're more wound up about this LGBTQ agenda than we are about honoring protocol in America. And in the countless ways in which the Biden administration has dishonored America, uh, this counts. And, you know, I was going to probably would have been more profound to say this on Flag Day, which I was going to do yesterday. But I think the honoring of the flag. In fact, I remember um, I'm going to do one other topic really quickly so we uh, do our time correctly. But I remember years ago, my father-in-law, who uh, served in the World War II and, you know, very patriotic guy. And, and we had gotten a flag to put up at our house. We lived in San Diego at the time. And, and he was commenting about something about how it had to be placed and, and whatever he was saying, you know, I, I just, I didn't know it was a rule. I just, and, and he said, no. And, and it's, my father-in-law is a very wise man. You know, he's, uh, he just said, basically, uh, yeah, we don't have it. Anyway, basically when you have the flag, you are saying, this is what I stand for. This is what America stands for. I believe in. So if you just, if you dishonor it, if you, you know, use it uh, to wipe the kitchen floor, if you use it in some other way, you you, you need to see that as a deeper, um, lack of seriousness of your commitment to what the flag stands for, what America stands for. I, I can't remember the eloquent words. My father-in-law had a great thing he said about it, but the gist of it was the flag is to be really honored. And, um, and this Biden administration did not by mistake put the, uh, the pride flag in the middle. So uh, I actually think it's just a, um, it symbolizes what they actually do think about disrespecting America and, and disrespecting what America stands for. Okay, so one last topic I'm going to do since I, I usually we have our guests till the final seconds. I'm trying to uh, get my last qu uh, questions out. But I want to just say one other thing about, I'm, I'm jumping around topics, filling in from what I was going to do yesterday. But um, I don't know if any of you or all of you, you saw um, Tucker Carlson. Um, you know, he's doing his show on Twitter now, which is so brilliant. He's doing a show on, do you guys watch? I'm talking to the audience. Do you, do you guys, yeah, to watch Tucker. Okay, so Tucker had his third episode out, and he's great. You know, he's being brave. Fox is suing him, telling him he can't, you know, he can't be talking anymore, and he just keeps on doing his show. Um, but but he, he keeps on talking about things that are really important. But um, Tucker Carlson 
was talking about why the deep state is so angry at Trump. Why do they go after Trump so much? And he was, you know, he was pointing out how, you know, this idiotic indictment of Trump, you know, over the Mar-a-Lago documents is, you know, you can pick holes at in a thousand ways. You know, it's you have Biden wasn't even president, so he had no right to documents, but he had them in places he shouldn't have. Obama had documents. Clinton had someone go into the National Archives and take documents and stick them down his pants. No one else gets prosecuted but but Trump. And so Tucker Carlson was trying to make the point, you know, the deep state really, really hates Trump. And that's and they and they really, really and, and they do. They look for any reason to discredit him to to just uh, diminish him but what Tucker focused on I think he kind of missed the boat because Tucker said well the whole reason that Bill Barr is now turned on Trump and he really really has Bill Barr was just disgraceful um, as was Mike Pompeo just disgraceful in defending this indictment he focused on, well, you know, it's because back when Trump was running for president in 2016, there was a presidential debate and all everyone who's still in is up there in the debate. And Trump made a comment about American foreign wars. And he just said, basically, you know, that in American foreign wars, you know, we, we've been in too many wars. We fought wars we didn't have to ha have to fight. You know, we, we shed American blood. He was talking about the, you know, the military industrial complex pushing America into war. Uh, and so getting people of both political parties behind wars we didn't need to do. And when Trump said in this speech that essentially, you know, they lied, meaning the, Amer the American people were lied to by the government about why they got into these wars. What Tucker Carlson is trying to say is the fact that Trump lied, uh, that Trump accused the, the Washington crowd of lying about wars, that that was the key moment, that was the day they all turned on him. And I, I think it is true that Trump really in, interrupted the military-industrial complex. He interrupted the spending. He interrupted. He interfered with all of that. And I think that's very fair and valid. But it's not really the whole story. In fact, it's not even the main story. I think the deeper and whatever you guys think about who you're backing for president, listeners, people here, I just want to say the reason that you can get a Mike Pompeo and a Bill Barr and the entire Washington establishment, FBI, DOJ, m many people in the House and Senate, okay with prosecuting Trump is because Trump actually stands for the restoration of the idea of America. It's far deeper than just the military industrial complex, which is a problem. But what Trump did when he ran in 2015 and 2016 was he made people believe in America again. He, made, he helped people believe in the idea of America. He helped people believe in the concept that we, the people, are the sovereign, that we can restore America's greatness and strength. He pointed out how under Obama we had watched just kind of the managed decline of America and decline of American prominence in the world. Trump got, and, and he wasn't even particularly deeply ideological in the way he talked about it, but what Trump got people thinking again was believing in the idea of America and you have a role you the individual citizen wherever it is you live whatever your issue is you know this idea in our constitution or in our in our declaration we are the sovereign we decide what America is we're in charge we pick the government we choose them and what Trump did is he caused the average person to believe in America again to think they had a role they could do something they could be active and change the course of America. And this is what enrages the uniparty deep state. More than anything else, even more than the military industrial complex, Trump brought out the spirit of America. And they, you know, these boat parades you see for Trump, these people showing up on 24 hours notice and filling a stadium. It's because he makes them believe in America again and makes them believe they matter and they have a place. And this enrages the left, because, and not just the left, the uniparty, because they've gotten comfortable in Washington, D.C. You have the Democrats and Republicans and the uniparty, and they kind of, everything's flowing along, and the peasants out there, the masses, you know, we run home during campaign season and tell them whatever they want to hear. But up in Washington, we're running this show, and we can't have the people out there, the peasants, really think they have any role at all, that they have any place in America to be part of directing our path. Yeah, thank you. And this, and this is why this is why Mike Pompeo and Bill Barr 
and the entire uh, DOJ FBI apparatus, why the entire many of the uniparty House and, and Senate Republicans and Democrats don't really care that Donald Trump is being he's not being prosecuted, he's being persecuted. He's being, you know, he uses the term witch hunt. That's not even strong enough. Whether you do or don't want Donald Trump to be president next time uh, is irrelevant to what I'm saying. Because what we are saying, and what these people are saying, is we will turn the entire rule of law on its head, we will ignore all other similar conduct engaged in by all sorts of elected officials, didn't even get on to Hillary Clinton and all the many things she could have been indicted for and should have been indicted for, but we have this establishment in Washington recognizing this guy is upsetting everything we, the ruling class, the deep state cabal, have established. He's ruining it all because he's making people believe in themselves and believe in America again, and they are going to start to expect us to respond to them, to listen to them, to, to move forward with policies they want, not what we, the deep state cabal, want. So it has been a, I, I mean, to me, it's been an eye-opening time since Donald Trump ran for the first time, he ran for president, um, came down that escalator, and I don't know if it was 2014 or 15, but whenever he came down the escalator and said, hey, I'm gonna run, I mean, a lot of people thought, well, who is this guy? I mean, they knew who he was, but who does he think he is? I think he's going to be president. But he has done more to convince America that we can restore the America, America's unique greatness and place in the world, that we can restore America's strength and prominence in our military. And as we watch what's happening, what the left is doing under this administration is simply tearing down America uh, in, in almost an unspeakable fashion and certainly in very rapid fashion. So um, I wanted to say about Tucker, I do appreciate him. But he really missed the boat on what he said on, on his big Twitter. I, I love he has a Twitter following. I love people listening to him. because He's way more right than wrong. But it's important to really recognize a deeper uh, point about why Trump is not, uh, why, why people are so after him. They, they would like the people to go back to their peasants, back to their cubbyholes, back to your life, and don't think you have any role in creating and protecting America or defining America's future. Trump made people believe in America again. And this is what, what they just, what they don't want. And it's really what needs to be said more and more. It's another reason why I'm uh, good friends with Dan Patrick. He certainly, he supported Donald Trump. He um, was his Trump's, uh, I've forgotten the title for it, but campaign manager, whatever it was, for Trump in Texas. Um, and really um, led the charge and has kept, kept support of Trump, uh, of Donald Trump at, during his last uh, years under Biden. He's, he's been outspoken about uh, Trump. And you know, it's a funny thing how the media can tend to mold and manipulate people. So, especially among women, you know, even conservative women, you hear a lot of women say, well, I'm Republican, but I'd never support Trump. People feel bullied into thinking, well, I don't wanna be, you know, that, that people, describe Trump supporters as a little bit too carried away, or maybe they're conspiracy theorists. To me, Trump, I mean, I mean I'll mean, i support whatever Republican wins a nomination, hook, line, sinker, I will do it. But I think what Trump has restored in America, and I think even more than he appreciated or even knew needed to happen, he's restored belief in the idea of America. And so God bless him for that. I am so grateful for him, grateful he's going to run. Okay, so we have approximately a minute and a half. It's kind of funny, since Bridie on TV took, picked up the show, I have to be really good about time, because it used to go really long, much longer than I was supposed to. So I'll quickly uh, tease the audience and tell you uh, someone about next week we have coming in on the show. Um, next week, there's a guy coming on the show named Mark Marano, M-A-R-A-N-O. And we're flying him in uh, to uh, do the show. He, and I encourage you, whether you're listening online or you're you know, watching or whether you're in the audience, to tune in next week. Mark Morano is a guy who will dive into the climate agenda, climate change agenda, in ways, I tell you what you should do is like, take notes the whole time he talks, and then every time you hear someone say anything about well, climate change and because of climate we can't have CO2 or we have to stop this or we can't have airplanes or we have to all electric cars, he is fact-filled on the, real, the truth about climate change, which is we don't have to be worried about it, fact-filled about the fact that America, the Earth needs CO2, we thrive on CO2, 
full of data about how historically before cars and even people came along, we had higher CO2 levels then than now. And the reason I, it isn't so much that we all need to understand climate change in detail as much as to understand it as he well does, he understands it as yet another vehicle the left uses to deprive the American people of freedom, to convince them you should give up your freedom, give up your comfort, give up your homes, give up all of your freedom so that we can save the climate. It's another lie the left has created to take away your freedom and really the future of freedom uh, in America. So it's going to be a very powerful show. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. I hope you'll tune in next week. And now, we're at the end of America Can We Talk. I want to thank you, first of all, for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Everyone listening, whether you're listening live or listening later, thank you for tuning in. I urge you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. Every interview we've done, every show, every blog post, everything we do is on the website. Love to have you join America Community Talk. You can do that at our website. I'd love to have you sign up for a newsletter. You can do that. But mostly, I hope you'll tune in to America Community Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Community Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?